It's great to be here. Uh, my family and I, we just moved to LA. We, I grew up in California, but spent the last 20 years in exile in the um, beauty and green and gloom and rain and antidepressants of the Pacific Northwest. And uh, it was an honor to serve there for many years. And now I just wake up in the morning. I can't, I can't talk about the weather with you from who are native to Southern California because you just don't understand. You're so narrow-minded. You have no... <laughs> but the other day I'm walking my dog and you know, we moved to Topanga Canyon and it's beautiful. And I pass a neighbor and we're kind of, you know, it's chit-chat stage, we just moved in. And I said, he goes, you know, we take this weather for granted, don't we? And I said, no, we don't. We wake up every day and dance. And he looked at me like I was the weirdest new neighbor on the planet. But very happy to be with you. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 and stand with me for the reading of scripture. And I would invite you over the next few weeks, if you have um, a Bible, not as in like the app on your phone, but a codex, um, if you have one at home, I would invite you just to bring it along. Don't feel bad if you don't have one. It's just helpful if your mind is anything like mine to focus on what God is saying to us. But let's just read together and the words are on the screen if not. Luke chapter 11, verse one. Just take a deep breath and receive the gift of scripture. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Take a seat. This is my mom, Diane, in all of her early 80s glory. Yes, that is yours truly. This picture was taken just a few months after I was born and she is smiling in her photograph. But there's a backstory. Right around this time, she began to notice an odd phenomenon where she found herself in conversation asking people, can you repeat that? Can you say that again? What was that? And after a series of doctor's appointments, she was diagnosed with a rare autoimmune disorder, uh, the result of which was progressive hearing loss. I think at her first audiologist appointment, it was 80% in one ear, 70% in another. And over the next few years of my childhood, that percentage just started to tack down. 60%, 30%, 20%. 10% to zero, where she could hear a, f a fire truck could drive behind her and she would have no clue. Her baby would cry out in the night and she would have no idea. Her son would grow up to play in a band and she would never hear the music. And you know, we all have these types of experiences. It's just different details. As Jesus said, in this world you will face trouble. And these moments, they are either our undoing or our rebirth. And for her, in this season of pain and loss and grief, she began to get up early in the morning and pray. 
One of my most vivid memories from my childhood is no matter how early in the morning I got up, she's a morning person, she was always the first one up in the house. I would come downstairs, she would be sitting there in her chair with her Bible open in her lap, staring out. Sometimes she was reading it, but most of the time, and she would never know I was there because she could not hear me. I would see her just staring out the window, her eyes a bit unfocused. And she was there in the room, but she was also somewhere else. And that left an imprint on my childhood brain. Because for me, I think like many of us early in the spiritual journey, in all honesty, prayer was like a bit of a drag. It was like the thing that you do if you're a good Christian, but it was very much in the ought to category, not the want to category. And, uh, you know, it was like eating your vegetables. Like, yes, I know I need to do this. It's good for me, but I don't want to. But it was very clear that she was experiencing something in prayer that I was not. That for her, prayer was not a discipline. It was a delight. But if we're honest, for a lot of us in the room, and don't feel any guilt or shame, uh, prayer is very much in the duty or discipline category, not delight. I mean, we're all so busy. It's hard to find time to pray. And when we do, it can be a bit boring, at least compared to what we're used to in mental stimulation. Our brain is distractible and jumpy and all over the place. And when we do finally sit down to pray, often we experience ourselves just as the spiritual writer Robert Mulholland once said, worrying in God's general direction. <laughs> so we make excuses. I, I have young kids or you know, I have an early job start or I work out in the morning or I'm an active personality or I have ADHD or whatever it is. And then we feel a little bit of guilt and then we just pick up our phone and go about our day. Let me normalize this for you. You and I are living through one of the most difficult moments in human history to pray. I mean, the smartphone alone is a death blow to prayer. We literally have multi, this is as close as I get to conspiracy theories. I'm just gonna put it all on the table first week, all right? And this is, this is fact, not conspiracy. We have multi-billion dollar corporations hiring the brightest minds in the world, from all over the world, with one aim, to distract you and addict you and monetize your attention and through it modify your behavior. All those little portals, I'm just, this is embarrassing. I'm old enough to remember this thing from the 90s we used to call boredom. And uh, it's like, it's, just, it's hard to imagine, but it's like those of you that are younger, it's like you'd be driving in your car and you'd come to a red light and you'd be at a red light. <laughs> and you'd just be stuck there. Or like you'd get to coffee early and like you didn't have a, like you'd just sit there and you'd wait for a person. And uh, all, all of these little moments of boredom were incredible gifts to our spiritual life because they were all little potential portals to God. Now all of those moments have just been swallowed up by the digital beast. Uh, then we have money, wealth. We are the wealthiest generation in the history of the world. You may not be that wealthy, but we, you're like, I am certainly not. <laughs> but we as a generation are. And with wealth comes all sorts of things. I mean, money can do a lot of what prayer does, but it's way easier and faster, and there's no accountability. Why pray for your daily bread when you can just door dash it? And with more, oh wow, we got somebody was in on that one. And you know, with more money comes more activity and more complexity in life. 
Plus we have science and technology, good things, answers to prayer, but why pray when you can just set an appointment over Zoom with a tele-doctor? What, what, that's not the right word, I'm so sorry. Whatever. Why, why ask God when you can ask Siri? Um, and more than anything, secularism and cynicism is the air we breathe. So even when does God, God does answer prayer, we often think, was that really God or was that just a coincidence? My point is, if you struggle to pray, you are not alone. As St. Teresa of Avila used to say, when it comes to prayer, we're all beginners. And yet prayer is the portal to life with God the life that we all most deeply desire in the marrow of our bones, whether we identify that undercurrent of human desire as a yearning for God or tragically misidentify it as a yearning for wealth or fame or beauty or love or sex or romance or marriage or you fill in the blank. Prayer is the door in. So we have to learn how to pray in a city like LA with a smartphone not far away in the busyness of life. And there's no one, of course, better to learn from than Jesus. So let's just look for a few minutes at Jesus' relationship to God in prayer. Um, and then we'll come right back here to Luke chapter 11. Just turn a few pages in your Bible to the left. Let me just give you a sampling of a kind of runner, running literary theme in Luke's biography of Jesus. Let's start in Luke chapter five, verse 15. Let's read. Yet the news about Jesus spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their illnesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. That can be translated, he frequently withdrew, or one version has, as was his custom, he would slip away, go to a quiet, solitary, distraction-free place, and he would pray. Turn the page, Luke chapter six, look down at verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the whole night praying to God. It's interesting, he goes out of the city, goes up on a mountain and he prays all night long. Turn the page, chapter nine, look at verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him, so not alone, and he again went up on a mountain to pray, this time with his disciples. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. He is literally transformed in prayer. Now, I just read you three stories. That is a minuscule sampling of the prayer that is woven in, if you read the four gospels, to the fabric of Jesus' everyday life, into his morning routine, into his weekly schedule. It seems like when you read the narratives, he made time for prayer, no matter how busy he was. If he was so jammed through his workday, he would literally stay up all night. He would go to great lengths to get out of the city, to go to a quiet place, either getting up at dark 30 in the morning or hiking to the top of a mountain, and it seems like all of this for Jesus was not discipline, it was delight. He was enraptured, for lack of a better word, when he was in relationship to his father. With all of that in mind, let's come back now to Luke chapter 11 and just work through the text line by line. Verse one, again. Another day, 
Jesus was praying in a certain place. Notice that. So he has some kind of like little hiding place that was for him the place of prayer. When he finished, that's interesting. So there's some kind of a dedicated time. One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John, referring here to the baptizer, taught his disciples. Now this is a fascinating request on at least two levels. One, it's fascinating because Jesus did so many amazing things performing miracles, healing the sick, casting out demons, yet we have no record in any of the gospels of the disciples ever saying to Jesus, Jesus, teach us to perform miracles. Jesus, teach us to heal the sick. The one time we have a Jesus teach us to, it's Jesus teach us to pray. It seems that the disciples living with Jesus 24 seven were smart enough to intuit that Jesus' extraordinary outer life in the world was the byproduct of a far more extraordinary inner life with God. That that was the well that Jesus was drawing from. Another layer that's really interesting is these are first century Jewish boys. They know how to pray. They would have stopped at least three times a day as was first century Hebrew custom to pray um, a prayer called the Amidah which was the precursor to the Lord's Prayer. So when they say, Jesus, teach us to pray, what they're really saying is, Jesus, teach us to pray like you. We stop, we say our prayer, but it's rote or it's religious or whatever, it's not bad. But when you pray, that's, that's a whole other dimension. We, we, want, we want that. We're not experiencing whatever it is that you're experiencing and we want in. Now, we come here this morning um, from all over the map, geographically, I'm sure people from all different parts of LA, but from all over the map on the spiritual journey. And we're drawn here, for the most part, you're likely here because at some level in your heart, you, you have some attraction to the person of Jesus or to the single person next to you that invited you here, and that's okay too, all right. Um, but you're likely here at some level because you're open to at least or full on drawn like a magnet to Jesus. And if you find in your heart at any level a resonance with the disciples' prayer, God, we want what you have, Jesus. I wanna invite you even right here in the middle, not this afternoon, not tomorrow, not this week, you'll forget about it. Right here to just, if you wanna close your eyes, take a deep breath or four, and just make the disciples' prayer your own. Lord, teach us to pray. The plan for the next four weeks is to explore the practice of prayer together as a community. In the Library of Scripture, prayer is a bit of an umbrella term for all sorts of different types of kind of ways of relating to God, but at its most basic, prayer is the medium through which we communicate and commune with God. In that sense, prayer isn't a practice at all because all of the practices, also known as the spiritual disciplines, are a means to an end, and really prayer, or life with God, is the end. The practice of prayer is learning to set aside dedicated time to intentionally deepen our communication and communion with God. The practice of prayer is to life with God what my wife down here in the second row, what our weekly date night is to our marriage. We live together, we're in the same house, we're together, we sleep next to each other at night, we're together all of the time. 
But every Wednesday night, we have this time that we set aside and we go out and if it's in the budget that month, we share a meal and since it's LA, that's about once a month and the other nights, we have a picnic at the park. And um, we go out and we have an intentional time with no distraction and our phones away and our children are away and uh, same difference. And we, we take this time to share, to connect at a deeper level in order to deepen our love all week long. In the same way, the practice of prayer is learning to set aside intentional moments in your daily ritual, in your weekly routine to deepen your connection to God all of the time. So of course, our desire for you and for our community in the coming weeks is not just that you learn about prayer uh, through teachings and not just that you experiment with different types of prayer and the companion guide and all of that, sure but that you live more and more a deeply connected life to God in the busyness and chaos and noise of this city. To that end, over the next four weeks, the plan is to explore four stages of prayer. Talking to God, talking with God, listening to God, and then just being with God. When you are first learning to pray, there's a bit of a progression from kind of one stage to the next, but that's a bit misleading to call it a stage because the spiritual journey is not linear and you never mature beyond any one dimension of prayer. It's less, the spiritual journey is less like a straight line and more like an ever tightening kind of spiral. And you just circle around and around and the farther you go, the deeper you go with God, the more it just all bleeds together. So you can think of these four dimensions of prayer as stages in your spiritual journey or just as layers by which you open deeper and deeper deeper parts of yourself to God. That said, on the docket for this morning is talking to God. And let's just continue to work through the text. Take a look again at verse two. Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, um, I want you to notice two things here about the text that we're about to read. What Jesus teaches his disciples to pray and how Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. First off, what Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. Protestants call this the Lord's Prayer. If you grew up Catholic, the Our Father. And it is not just a liturgy or a pre-made or pre-written prayer. It's also a theology. Um, Just meaning it's a theological framework for prayer. It's a set of assumptions about the nature of God and reality that frame all of our life with God in prayer. For example, a lot of people equate the word prayer with asking God for things, which is two types of prayer called petition and intercession. We'll talk more about that next week. And while that's embedded in the Our Father of the Lord's Prayer, notice it does not happen until halfway through. The whole first half that we'll work through in a minute is just theological and really even more psycho-spiritual orientation to the reality of God that we come into in prayer. Let me point out just four truths from the text. First, for Jesus, God is our Father. It's the first line. In the NIV it just says, Father. Or you may have our Father. In Aramaic, the language that Jesus likely spoke, it's Abba. What a child or a son or a daughter would call their father, a term of affection. 
In Jesus' day, that was a revolutionary way to address God. The New Testament scholar Jacobim Jeremias writes, there is not a single example of the use of Abba as an address to God in the whole of Jewish literature. He's saying that arguably Jesus is the first person in human history to ever address God as Father. That's how Jesus thought of God and that is how Jesus wants his disciples or his followers to also think of God. Now I have to pause here for a moment and just gently touch on the pain in the room and just name that for many of you this will be one of the most difficult moments in your spiritual journey because of pain or wounding from your own biological father. How do you pray to God as father when your father abused you in any way or abandoned you or you've been suffering at the hands of the patriarchy and fighting against it your whole life? How do you then slip into this tender mode of Abba? But this painful journey that you likely need to go on of healing is essential because in Jesus' mind, what comes to mind, when I say the word God, what comes into your mind, we can use this word all we want, but I don't know how many people are in the room, 700 different people? There are probably about 700 different things that come to mind when I say the English word God. Whatever that is, it will make or break not just your prayer life, but the trajectory of who you become because we all become like our vision of God for better or for worse. My friend John Tyson in New York City writes this, unless you break the stronghold of false images of God in your mind, you'll never be drawn to prayer. Some of you have a demonic stronghold. I don't wanna scare you off with that word, but some of you have a stronghold in your mind of a false image of God that is keeping you away from the real, true God on display in Jesus. Um, An easy example would be if you grew up in a far right religious household and you have this view of God as the kind of tyrant in the sky, just baseline emotion is just anger and disappointment. And every time you screw up, it's just like the buzzer in heaven goes off and the pointer and the glare because maybe that's what your parent was like or your pastor was like, or your authority figure was like. If that's your image of God, who would want to pray to that? Who would want to open a deep layer of wounding and heart to that? Or if you like grew up like me on the West Coast, I think of my friends, like one out of a hundred of them think God is mad at them. The others just think God wants them to have awesome sex all the time with whoever they want, anytime they want. God is not the angry tyrant He's your cosmic sex therapist who just wants you to be true to yourself. And you notice why nobody's laughing? It's because that's way too close to home. (laughs) The other one's like funny. Yeah, those are angry religious fundamentalists. You understand that there's religious fundamentalists on the left too, right? And the nice thing about a kind of West Coast, you know, bohemian God who just loves the word love but wants to redefine what love is very differently from Jesus The nice thing about that is he or she or it or they will do whatever you want them to do. They don't disagree with you on anything. They hate all the people you hate. They love all the people you love. They agree with all of your political opinions. It's awesome. The the really sucky thing is that God is a made up figment of your imagination. And um, therefore when you 
pray to that God, there's nothing there. It's empty, it's not real. That's why Jesus is utterly essential. Through Jesus we receive a revelation of who God is, not based on my aesthetic intuition or what people say on the street or what's cool in West LA or what some generational consensus is, but based on who God at Jesus comes from, the Father, to make him known. So that we, yes, there's mystery to God that we will never fathom, but there are parts of God that have become known in Jesus. So we must all begin in our spiritual journey with the healing of our false images of God and we must come to view God at some level as our Father. The um, main emotional word that's used for God in all of the scripture, in the Old Testament and the New, is the word compassion. God is compassionate, that is his primary emotional trait. In the Old Testament, the word is rahum, and it's literally the word, it's actually, it's used at times for a father or a parent, it's more often used for a mother, of how a mother feels about her infant child. If you're a mother, you know, and even if you're a dad at some level, there's this miracle when a baby is born, some conspiracy of heaven and neurobiology conspire together and you just feel this outpouring of love for this little thing that just wrecked your body, cost you thousands of dollars, you don't sleep, it stinks, it poops, it doesn't say anything to you, and then it grows up and it breaks your heart and (laughs) takes your debit card. It's just, and yet you're just, this outpouring of love that you feel for this child. It's different for every mother and every father, but there is this innate rahum, compassion. That is the word used all through the scripture and especially out of the mouth of Jesus for how God feels toward you. That is God's baseline emotional disposition toward, does God get angry? Absolutely, but it's the anger of a mother or a father. My wife is down here in the second row. She's about the nicest, most West Coast person you've ever met until she's not. Now she is so kind, but if my kids push her to a certain level, and not based on ego, when they're doing something stupid, I mean, when she gets angry, it's fierce. But it comes out of this heart of just love, compassion, goodwill, all that to say, when you close your eyes or not, and you say, our Father, Compassion, love, welcome, hospitality, affection, pouring out from the Father through Jesus by the Holy Spirit into the depth of your being. That's the first thing you need to realize about prayer. Secondly, is that God is as close as the air. Um, The next line, notice there's a footnote if you have the NIV or the ESV right after the word Father, and after that it says in heaven. There are two versions of the Lord's Prayer. Luke right here is um, kind of the shorter version, and then in the Gospel of Matthew, you kind of get the director's cut. It's much longer, and, but even in Luke's version, we have some manuscripts that have the full version, our Father in heaven. Now, heaven is a tricky word because in English, when most people read heaven, they think of the cloud city in outer space that you go to when you die. But in Greek, the word is uranos, and it's actually plural, the heavens. It was the word in the first century just for the air or the atmosphere, and over time, it took on a symbolic meaning for kind of the spiritual realm. Either way, just hear it this way, our Father in the air 
in the atmosphere. Think about air. Air is all around you. Air is up against, air is underneath your clothes. It's up against your skin. You breathe in air. Air is in your body. Air is, if I understand it correctly, there's literally oxygen in our bloodstream. That's how close God is to you. So the next thing that Jesus wants you to realize is when you come to pray, you're not praying to some being out past Jupiter and with Elon Musk out in space. (laughs) Like you're becoming aware of the God who is not only all around you, but who as St. Augustine said in the fourth century is closer to you than you are to yourself. Why, Why did Jesus go to a mountain to pray? Why do so many of us when we go hiking or camping or backpacking or out to, why do we often like feel God's presence so much more out in nature than in the chaos of our daily life. Is God more present up in the Santa Monica Mountains than he is in Venice? Yes, he is actually, probably. (laughs) Um, But there's something about when we get out of the human-made stimuli and distraction and godlessness and immorality and all of the things, it is what it is. It's like all of a sudden we, oh oh yeah, God is all around me, he's in the air. Third, the primary goal of prayer is the worshipful enjoyment of our Father's company. The next line, hallowed be your name. Okay, that is a weird word. How many of you used the word hallow this last week? Or ever, right? We don't use that word anymore. It basically, to hallow, it's kind of like the verb form of the word holy. It means to revere and respect the holiness of God. And to be holy, contrary to what a lot of people think, it's not actually a moral word primarily in the scripture. It's, it literally just means special, unique, different, and beautiful. To say God is holy is to say there is no other being in reality as special and unique and beautiful as the Trinitarian community of love and joy and peace that we put the English word on God. The late Timothy Keller writes this, to hallow God's name is to have a heart of grateful joy toward God and even more a wondrous sense of his beauty. Consider how different this is from the normal way we use prayer to get things. We may believe in God, but our deepest hopes and happiness reside in things, as in how successful we are or in our social relationships. We therefore pray mainly when our career or finances are in trouble or when some relationship or social status is in jeopardy. When life is going smoothly and our truest heart's treasures seem safe, it does not occur to us to pray. Seldom or never do we spend sustained time adoring and praising God. We know God is there, but we tend to see him as a means through which we get things to make us happy. For most of us, he has not become our happiness. Don't hear that in like a guilt and shame way. Hear that like there is an experience of God that many of you probably have not had yet. And I am one of millions or billions of people who've had a little taste, who can tell you, first off, that prayer is the best thing this side of eternity. And there are moments in prayer when somehow the distraction and the chaos and the noise somehow it starts to fall away and all of a sudden you find yourself below the well of your soul 
touching the infinite sea of love that is the Father and the Son and the Spirit, not just around you, but deeper within you than you could possibly be in yourself. And there are no words to even name that feeling. When you begin to enter into the love and the joy, the affection, delight, laughter, hospitality that go back and forth between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, when through Jesus and by the Spirit and in prayer you are caught up in the middle of that, there is nothing better. That does not cost a penny. You don't need a degree. You don't need to hire a coach. You just have to sit down for a moment. And if you touch on that, there's a bliss there, there's a joy there. I, I don't know anything else on offer. And if you experience something like that, you can't help but want everybody else. This is how we are, right? You experience something good. You see a new TV show or I'm reading a novel right now and I'm telling all my friends about the novel or like whenever you're like, oh, you just want your friends to know. You want to hollow God's name. You want other people to experience the beauty of who God is. Finally, for Jesus, our prayers really do make a difference. Jesus' next line is your kingdom Come, again, if you look at the footnote, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just notice one very simple thing that was actually quite controversial to American Christians. Jesus assumes that his kingdom has not yet come and that his will is not yet done, at least not in full. In part, yes, but not in full. And he seems to assume that through prayer, we partner with Jesus to bend reality in the direction of our Father's good intentions. We'll talk more about this next week, but this is, there's actually a strong undercurrent of fatalism in the Western church, particularly in the American church, that is a death blow to prayer. Dallas Willard, who was a professor of philosophy at USC, said this, God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that he's answering our prayer when he's only doing what he's going to do anyway. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does regardless of whether we pray or not is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. And of course, God does not respond to this. You wouldn't either. So when you come to pray, come with a holy tremor in your body and be careful what you ask for in the best sense of that word. Now, we could say so much more about the Lord's Prayer. I just want you to see how different Jesus' framework is from a lot of ours. We think of God as the grumpy dictator, the Father. We think he's far away. No, he's as close as the air. We think the main point of prayer is to get things. No, it's just to enter into the Trinity. We assume that what's going to happen is going to happen with or without our prayers. No, we change reality with the power of God. No wonder we're not drawn to prayer. So that's what Jesus teaches us to pray. Now just a few short words on how Jesus teaches us to pray. Let me give you another simple observation that is actually quite um, helpful. Jesus does not start by teaching us to pray whatever is on our mind or whatever we would call kind of extemporaneous prayer. Just whatever, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? Just say that to God. That's great. 
Don't bad, not bad to do that, Don't, that's good if you do that. But notice Jesus starts by saying, when you pray, say. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight argues that verse two can be translated, when you pray, recite this. And then comes the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is tapping into an ancient Hebrew custom of praying pre-made or pre-written prayers, or what some today would call liturgical prayers. And this is what we mean by stage one, talking to God, just praying pre-made prayers that somebody else wrote for you to guard and guide you and I's mind and heart and life into union with God. Um, a few days ago, if you're on the vintage kind of email subscription list or whatever, Gare sent out a letter with a beautiful pre-made prayer from Pete Gregg over in the UK for what's happening in Israel and Gaza right now. I don't know how to pray for that. I just know I'm heartbroken. It's an impossible situation. I don't even know what to pray for half the time. And somebody else who's thoughtful and wise and put some time in was able to craft a short prayer that if you want is in your inbox and you can pray that to God. Now, um, there are really helpful times to pray a pre-made prayer. Let me give you a few examples of pre-made prayers. Um, The Lord's Prayer is the most famous in the New Testament. It was prayed three times a day by the early Christians. The Psalms, which are literally called the prayer book of the Bible, and you may not know this, the Psalms are not really designed to be read. You don't read the Psalms, you pray them. Scripture itself, um, many people find great life in praying scripture back to God. You know you're praying in line with God's intentions. Singing, St. Augustine famously said that to sing is to pray twice. Right? We don't think of singing like modern worship music as liturgical, but it is. We're all praying a pre-made prayer together. Liturgy and more historic streams of the church, like the Book of Common Prayer in the Anglican tradition or the Liturgy of the Hours in the Catholic tradition, which is a beautiful work. And in today's world, there are now apps on your phone like Lectio 365 and others that are so helpful. These are all examples of talking to God with pre-made prayers. This type of prayer is very helpful in a number of situations. When you're first learning how to pray and you don't really know what to say. Think, how do children learn to write? By tracing letters. How do we learn to pray? When you pray, say this, our Father in heaven, the Lord is my shepherd, so on and so on. When you're traveling and away from the habit cues of your kind of daily life, when you're exhausted because you just had a baby or you're in a crazy season of work and you can't focus your mind, when you're heartbroken or you're ill, you're unwell and you need help, when you long for greater articulation in your prayer, you want something more thoughtful and intelligent and theologically weighty, when you're in what St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul and God feels more like an absence than a presence, and you need a prayer, somebody else's faith to carry you through. In these situations and many more, it can be a very helpful way to pray. There are limitations to this prayer. It can feel intellectual. It can feel inauthentic, sure. But if you bring your heart's full intention to it, you're tapping in. I mean, you're praying with millions of Christians around the world and down through history. You're praying with theological weight and artistic beauty. You are guiding and guarding your mind to attune it to God. Now, the best way to learn by pray, pray, to pray is not by listening to me talk at you for 40 minutes. It's by praying. 
Um, and this is a crucial, that we take Jesus' teachings and in his own words, we put them into practice. So each week, we'll offer you some spiritual exercises or little practices that if you want, you can adopt and adapt into your own life. Now to quote my Peloton instructor, Denny Morton, I make recommendations, you make decisions, all right? <laughs> so you do you. Um, but that companion guide, you can just come and listen for the next four weeks, great. But that companion guide, and there's a hard copy one, and then it's free if you want a digital download uh, at the website, is full of um, just some simple exercises each week, as well as recommended reading and podcasts and more information and bun a reach exercise, bunch of extra stuff if you want it. But make sure you have that just so you have it in front of you in the week ahead. And this week there are two basic practices. The first is just to create a daily prayer rhythm to create a place and a time, kind of just a daily habit of prayer and get really pragmatic here. Ask yourself questions like, when will I pray? First thing in the morning, at night, on my lunch break, when my baby is napping, just as a general rule, pick your best time of day when you're most awake and alert. Where will I pray? Like find somewhere distraction free. That may mean going down to the beach early in the morning. It may mean like going into a closet like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. How will I pray? Do you wanna pray sitting down, standing up? You are an embodied person. I actually find like my posture, my breathing to be absolutely essential in how I pray. Sitting in different situations and breathing for a while can really help me connect with God. Those of you that are more kinesthetic may really discover life uh, walking. Like going, I think Gare does his prayer early in the morning, walking his dog. I have a friend of mine who always prayer walks a park near his house every single morning. That's how he does it. Just work with your body and your personality. Don't fit yourself into somebody else's mold. How long will I pray? There's no right answer to this. There's literally anything is good. I think as a general rule, long enough to come to peace before God. And I don't know how long that will take. Probably longer than you think and probably longer than you want. Uh, Francis de Sales once said, each Christian needs a half hour of prayer each day, except when they are busy, then we need an hour. <laughs> and don't let that freak you out. You may think, I, I barely can get in three minutes. Great, start where you are, not where you should be. But if we're too busy to pray, not to end on a dour, but we're too busy. And if other, we make time for the things that are most important for us. So if we have time to watch a show, if we have time to work out for forever, you LA people, you're so fit. What are you, just always running, always? Okay, just take a tithe of that time and pray. Like if we're too busy to pray, we're too busy. The next practice is just to pick out a pre-made prayer and talk to God. There's that list of all sorts of different ways to do this. If you don't have a preference, I just follow your heart. And if you don't have a preference, then I would highly recommend pray the Psalms. I've been following Jesus since I was a little boy and they are still the center of my prayer life, the center of my devotion to God and they are utterly beautiful. Um, in closing, remember this, last thought. There's not like a right way to pray. A lot of this stuff, a lot of the stuff in the guide is technique, 
not bad, but technique is for us, it's not for God. It's to focus our mind and our heart and bring our whole self before God. I love this from the spiritual writer Ronald Ruhlheiser. There's no bad way to pray and no single starting point for prayer. The spiritual masters offer one non-negotiable rule. You have to show up for prayer and show up regularly. Everything else is negotiable and respects your unique circumstances. So just remember, the point of prayer, it's not to learn a technique, it's not to master a discipline. If anything, it's to be mastered and be set free. It's to open yourself to God. One of my favorite writers on prayer defines prayer as opening to God. And really, that is the crux of the spiritual life, at least for a disciple of Jesus. The driving question of a disciple of Jesus is how do I open deeper and deeper layers of my inner being to the peace and the presence and the power of God to transform me into a person of love and joy and peace. Because transformation is his work, it's not ours. Prayer is not to Christianize mindfulness. I'm all for mindfulness, but there's something more happening here under the surface. Prayer is not just having your habit stacking your way to good mental hygiene, though I believe in all of that, it's good and crucial. But prayer at the core can be summed up in the prayer of Jesus, Father, not my will, but your will be done. It's an opening. So this morning, why don't you stand with me as we end our time? I just wanna invite you to sit in the quiet for a moment before we begin to sing and open it up for you to come forward for prayer and have someone else pray for you. Beautiful. To just ask God in the quiet of your mind, take a deep breath, slow, through the belly. Strengthen your back, just breathe in the air of God. And I would just invite you to ask God, or yourself, where are you closed? Or where are you blocked? Or where are you hindered from tapping in to the life at the center of the Trinity? Can you find that invisible fulcrum deep in your inner woman or man? Can you unlock it, unlatch it? Can you yield and open and trust another layer of your heart to the love of God and let the compassion and love of God come pouring in. 